0: Welcome to the Corporate Athlete Episode 3. I'm your host, Rachel Findler. In the Corporate Athlete, we draw parallels between the corporate world and the athlete world. And In this episode, we're talking about comebacks, coming back from mistakes. Now, we all make mistakes, whether it's personally, as a team or as a company, but what really matters is how do you come back from those mistakes. In 2015, Volkswagen were involved in their emissions scandal, where they were caught for cheating on their emission tests for their diesel-powered vehicles, resulting in $30 billion worth of fines. But since then, Volkswagen sales have risen to 6.23 million cars in 2017, with their US market growing for the first time since 2013 by 5.2% in 2017. As a result of the emission scandal, Volkswagen are focusing their efforts on electrical vehicles, self-driving technology and digital mobility, And they're investing 34 billion euros into this area between now and 2022 and this may well just put volkswagen as one of the leaders in the next stage of the auto industry so in this episode i'm talking with tom williams tom has been with the harlequins rugby team for 17 years and is currently the academy transition coach and prior to that he was a professional rugby player with the harlequins for 13 years but in 2009 he found himself in the middle of the bloodgate scandal which resulted in a temporary ban from rugby, an act he seriously regrets. And Tom shares with us how it's one of the toughest things he's ever had to deal with. But Tom bounced back by playing harder and tougher. And in 2012, he was part of the Premiership winning team, the Hardequins, and in 2013 was awarded the Players Player of the Year, a pretty impressive comeback. Tom, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, Thank you for having us into your beautiful home. If you hear any little pitter-patters, it's your (laughs) lovely dogs in the background, it's not us snorting away. (laughs) Yeah, no,
1: exactly. Uh, It's good to to be here and thanks for inviting me on.
0: Um, So welcome back. You just got back to the UK after a week's trip over to France.
1: Yeah, I was was out there doing a bit of coaching uh, development. So I've been at Harlequins for 17 years now, or no, 16 years. At the end of next season, it'll be the 17th year. I, straight off, I went there sorry, straight after school and, as a player, was a player at Harlequins for 13 seasons and subsequently moved into coaching when I had to retire through injury uh, in 2014. And um, as a result being in only one place, I thought it's time to try and experience a different environment, especially as uh, Harlequins struggled this season and I want to see what other teams are doing. So I went down to Montpellier in France. Montpellier finished the current season uh, in the French League as as champions. Uh, They go into playoffs now to see who's the outright champion, but they're at the top of the league. So I went down there and tried to experience what they're doing in their coaching environment, how they're coaching their players, and uh, if I could learn anything from them ultimately.
0: That's a very open door policy. Is that accepted in the rugby industry that you do welcome other coaches in?
1: Uh, I think it's got to be. Uh, not all coaches, uh, not all environments are as open as, say, Montpellier were with me, uh, but ultimately they're not, um, I suppose, competitors of ours. They're in a different league, they're in a different European competition, they're in the top-tier competition and we're in the, in the second-tier competition. So I imagine if we were in the top-tier composite, uh, competition, playing against them, potentially in the group stages, they might have been less receptive (laughs) to me coming in. Uh, But I suggest that would only have happened in season. Um, And it's a bit of, uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And as a result, I invited their coaches over to Harlequins to experience our environment, uh, should they want to. Um, Because that's what it's all about, and that's part of learning. If you can um, learn off your competitors, you can drive each other's standards on, and that's got to be ultimately... (coughs) where you want to be in the future.
0: Yeah, I'm such a believer in, in sharing things so that the whole industry can grow together. Um, so what are the rules when one coach goes to another club or a player goes to another club? What are the rules on sharing information in their previous training and all the methods that teams use?
1: I think if you've, if you've left, if you've, if you've not been kept on as an employee of a previous club, all bets are off Take everything you want with. You, <laughs> you know, it's like going to a competitor, isn't it? Um, you, you take everything you've learned and you want to also beat the club you were previously at. But if you're just going in for a learning experience as a coach, uh, you've got to be respectful of their environment. You don't use any specific calls when you go back to your, your own place, and you just respect what they're trying to achieve. So for me, if I came out now today uh, and said, oh, Montpellier are going to pick so-and-so for tonight's game, um, that wouldn't go down very well, because they've got a okay, a semi-final against Leon in Leon. And it would give Leon an unfair advantage, uh, not to mention that I'd be um, going against betting regulations and things like that. So <laughs> I'd probably end up in prison as it is. So <laughs> yes. It's just it's, it's just respecting the environment. They've been kind enough to let me into their uh, coaching group, and I don't want to uh, abuse that trust.
0: You must see very different styles with coaching. Did you experience that going to Montpellier, that uh, the coaches there have a very different style to you? And, and what is your coaching style? Do you take the firm or do you take the friend?
1: There's a spectrum and you've got to be able to go up and down that spectrum. You've got to be the leading sort of coach or you can also be sort of the pushing uh, type of coach, the coercive sort of coach. Um, And it's really about reading the environment, reading the situation as to where you have to be on that spectrum. Um, But ultimately from my perspective we do all the analysis uh, for the opposition and whilst you want to give the players an element of power because you're not on the pitch playing the game for them and they need to make decisions for themselves you need to help them out prior to that point with as much guidance as possible um, but if you can help them try and get to that point without telling them a b and c and making them potentially work out how to get to c and if it means that they go via the rest of the letters in the alphabet then it's not necessarily a bad thing because you know, from those from experience the learning journey does have its peaks, does have its peaks and troughs and you don't necessarily want to, the guys to not experience those troughs because that's often when the most learning takes place.
0: I suppose that's why you have such a varied team of coaches and things. Everyone has their own role, can be there for the players in different scenarios. Is that true?
1: Yeah. And if you look look at someone like British Cycling and they try to cover every single aspect and I think Dave Brails would call it the one percenters and at Harlequins we try to emulate that. And actually... Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. With Harlequin's last season, we finished 10th in the league. It didn't work. Actually, it turned out that probably there was a few too many cooks in in the kitchen. And um, you go down to Montpellier, different team of players, different situation, different team of coaches. But it's a much smaller group of coaches and it's much more streamlined and it's much more there's a spread of accountability across the three, three coaches. Uh, and I think that actually led to probably a more honest environment um, for the guys uh, to perform in. Now let's not to say it's always gonna work from Montpellier and sometimes you know next year at Queens we might have three more coaches and it might might work because of that because we've got it working in the right direction but there's no right or wrong answer along those lines. It's just what's right for the environment, what's right for the people around you and in a rugby from a rugby perspective it's what resonates most with the players.
0: And every single player is different, and of course there's a different culture with every single team, isn't there, and club?
1: Team, club, personalities. Uh, The hardest thing about leadership is man management, without a doubt. Uh, It's the biggest learning curve I've had in the three or four years I've been coaching, is um, how to get the best out of the individual, so that they can help those around them get the best out of themselves as well. And... It's without doubt the hardest thing you can learn as a coach.
0: Obviously, being a player, you had you know, so many coaches help you throughout the way. Mm. Did you obviously use their tools and techniques when you stepped into that management role yourself?
1: Uh, Coaching is experiential to an extent, isn't it? So you learn what to do, what you enjoy, what resonates with you, but also what doesn't. Um, but also, you've got to become more and more observant as to how other players respond to certain things. So... I will look at my favourite coaches and think, right, I want to be like that. But actually, and, that, and from my perspective, I want the guys to learn and experience it and make decisions by themselves as much as possible. But then I've also got to look at the other end of the spectrum and think, some guys like and respond to being told and they're very binary about it. They want to be told what to do and when to do it. Otherwise, they really struggle with making decisions. Whereas there's some players who you've got to give a spectrum of decision-making to and say, right, well, what, do you, what would you do here? It's like, it seems like lazy coaching, but actually sometimes that's really, really good. It's like, okay, well, what, what do you feel? What, what was your, what were your options here? Why did you do it? Uh, whereas some guys go, well, look at the pitcher. What should I have done? It's like, well, you tell me. No, no, you tell me. They, they want to be told. <laughs> and each player has, a, each personality has their position in a rugby team of 15 players on the pitch at any one time, well, hopefully 15. Sometimes you get yellow cards, red cards, but more often than not, 15 players. And so long as people respect what other people's strengths and weaknesses are and are aware of them, I think that's when you get the best out of those around you.
0: I think talking about strength and weaknesses must be one of the toughest things to do because it's so hard to admit our faults. Do you find that the athletes that you work with, the rugby players, are quite open about their faults or do they struggle with it?
1: How honest can you be? Again, it comes back to the individuals, and personalities. It's like if I went up to a coach and said, why, why am I not being picked? And a coach said to me, "Oh, because the other guy is doing this better than you, this better than you, and this better than you." At the moment, I go, "Okay, so, but they're different players, different types of players. What, why wouldn't you just tell me because he's better for the team than I, than you are at the moment?" See, so, yeah, I'd respond back to that better. But if I went to, up to a player now as a coach and said, "Well, he's doing it better than you are," or uh, because you're not good enough. That could, that could potentially crush a player, and you wouldn't get the best performance out of that player for a number of weeks afterwards. Mm. Plus, you might lose the trust, lose any bond that you've potentially built up and things like that. Um, so again, it comes back to that management of the individual and trying to see how honest you can be with people.
0: Mm. Well, you had a, an incredible career as a player with the Harlequins. Was it 13 years?
1: 13 years. So I, straight out of school, I, um, I went to Harlequins. Yeah, about Two days after I finished my exams, I was
0: two days after so,
1: something like that. Yeah, and I've been employed by them ever since.
0: Thrown straight into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, it wasn't so long after the advent of professionalism either. So it's chalk and cheese to what it is today in terms of the number of backup staff, a number of uh, squad members, the training facilities, etc., and and the analysis facilities. We used to put a tape in a in a in a, TV, uh, in a VCR and put and watch it and t- watch the game together as a group, which. As it's placed still watching the game and sitting down but now everything's coded you can see uh what i did in the 58th minute how many tackles i made when we were positive tackles neutral tackles negative tackles or missed tackles and you can actually build up a picture you can do season long statistics and things like that it's huge amounts of information some might argue too much information
0: yeah uh, <laughs> which
1: can distract that can distract from actually the, the ultimate goal but um, it is available for you, it's, it's chalk and cheese. and Yeah, as you said, i I played for Harlequins for 13 years, plenty of ups and downs, um, didn't quite achieve what I wanted to do, which was ultimately becoming a, a full international. I played England Sevens uh, on a couple of occasions in 2004 and 2007, uh, but I, I didn't achieve my ultimate goal of, of representing my country, which uh, still at me to this day.
0: Yeah, it does it because I think athletes are so good at setting these very high goals, and not achieving them. It's you kind of feel like it's been slipped away. But at the same time, you pushed yourself as hard as you could. You still got, um, you know, to have an amazing career that you did. And if you hadn't have set that goal, you might not have had such an incredible career because you were working so hard.
1: Yeah, and I I think as I look back and think, what could I've done differently? I don't necessarily think I worked so hard. I think I could have worked harder. Oh really? No, yeah, yeah. I think, um, but hindsight's a, a wonderful thing to use a cliche, and I, uh, I think, you look back and think, what decisions did I make? And if I was becoming a professional now, would I have been able to make that step up and become a, a full England international, knowing what I know now? Potentially, but mm, and that's other people, other people were faster, and other people were bigger and stronger, and made better decisions on the pitch, and ultimately, that's why they got the caps and I didn't.
0: Yeah, but that's why you're a coach now because you have all this knowledge and experience so of course you can share it with people. Well I had to sort of
1: reinvent myself as a player on a couple of occasions because I started off really quick um, and great footwork, few injuries meant that I wasn't quite as quick, didn't quite have as good footwork so I had to think right how can I become a better player, Uh, how can I become or maintain my effectiveness within the side Uh, and so that meant that I had to assess my own performance. Uh, and adjust what I was doing to what would best suit the team and those guys around me. Uh, Because those guys were internationals around me on occasions, Mike Brown, for example, or Hugo Monier, guys who are seasoned international, seasoned regular premiership players, and they they were getting in the side every week, and I wasn't. I was like, right, how can I change what I'm doing to maximise what they're doing? Because if I can get them the ball more often, then ultimately that means that I'm doing my job better, and they can do their job better. And they're the better player, so ultimately that's what I I've, I saw my role as, and developed my role over a period of six, seven, eight years.
0: Mm, it's knowing where you fit in in the team, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there's you know those guys might be two bits of wood when you're trying to put a floor together <laughs> or something like that, but actually they'll they'll need a bit of glue to put them together because without glue they'll just start warping and and, and coming up and things like that. So they need you need to get those guys the ball and you need to get, find ways in which to get them in the ball in the best position. Mm.
0: And in 2009, after the Bloodgate scandal, you had to really invent yourself as a player and probably as a person as well.
1: Oh, massively. Um, it was So it was in 2009, we were playing Leinster and as I went onto the pitch, my coach at the time, or director of rugby at the time, said, right, you're, you're coming off for blood. And I was like... What? okay cool um, and then the physio came on give me a blood capsule and things like that and it all snowballed from there and ultimately I was within a culture that was rotten to an extent and that was accepted that sort of behavior of a win at all costs uh, even mm-hmm. cheating uh, which in hindsight I was like my parents never raised me like that what was I thinking of course you did um, but being involved in that environment where you're absolutely Desperate, desperate to win, but desperate to go over the boundaries is—it wasn't sustainable, and it turned out that way. And we got, we got found out, and I had a ban, and the club had a ban, and the coaches had a ban, the physios had a ban. It was a horrendous, horrendous fallout, from which, from a personal perspective, I really, really struggled. I got sick afterwards, um, and I lost two stone weight wow. and I wasn't a heavy rugby player anyway I was 13 and a half stone so going down to about 11 and a half stone um, and you just start doubting everything you do. Uh, I came back four months later, played in my first game up at Northampton Saints uh, at Franklin's Gardens and ironically got punched in the nose a couple of times and my nose started bleeding <laughs> and it was real blood and of course all the papers the next day were about oh real blood from Tom Wooden of Bloodgate fame and it's a uh, it's a stigma that stuck with me for a long time, um, and occasionally, still, someone to say something, even now. So it's, uh, I've learned to sort of deal with it, but it took its time. I tell you, it was a good two years before I recovered sufficiently enough to get the max to start maximizing my performance on the rugby pitch again. Mm-hmm. I'm just lucky that Harlequin still stuck with me for that long.
0: You know, we all make mistakes, and some of us get caught, some of us don't. Mm. Um, but I always think it's how you overcome the mistake that makes the person that you are and, and mm. a lot of people would either become very insular, removed, um, maybe not find that motivation to keep going and you've got this tremendous career in rugby um, overcoming such a hurdle from 2009. Mm. What, what was your outlet like who did you turn to during that time and, and what what could you do in that moment?
1: it was it's really interesting I, um, there wasn't the um, number of people who are available today in 2009 th- to speak to, and I felt very, very isolated, and that's why it took me, say, two years to get back to where I was. But I can remember a moment where I was crying in the bedroom, uh, and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, Alex, and I was like, I don't, I don't want to go to work today. And she just said, What the hell else are you going to do? Didn't go to uni. You don't want to work in the city. <laughs> What do you want to do with your life? Do you want to be known as Tom Williams' blood Do you want to be known as something else? And that's in your in your uh, only in your court, and you're the only one who can change that those perceptions. And that resonated with me. That was a, a you know seminal changing point for me. Um, and I was lucky to have Alex. Still, am lucky to have Alex in my life because she does have that ability just to bring some context to it and to make me realise actually this is what you need to do to make yourself feel better. And then from that, I had a lot of support from. Um, the Harlequins coaches, in particular a guy called John Kingston, who's the Harlequins director of rugby, who's unfortunately just lost his job. But he's, he was banging the drum about, what's your X factor? I want to see your X factor. I want to see your X factor. Why are you here? Um, it's not enough just to exist. You've got to show us why you should be here. And that, again, was probably my only uh, ever outlet. There was no sort of access to a regular psychologist or uh, anything like that. So it was a little bit different to the um, what the guys have available to them these days. You know, at Harlequin we've got a couple of psychologists, we've got um, with the Rugby Players Association, the ability to, to phone up a, uh, <coughs> a mental health helpline and I think everyone is also much more aware of it, thanks to the work of, of a lot of charities around that, so um, along those lines, it's I'm not a natural talker anyway, I don't particularly like discussing feelings and it's not that I'm a stoic old school guy, but I just don't particularly like talking and um, Alex gets me to talk and you've just got to find that person who manages to get that out of you.
0: I think, you know, how you were saying earlier about um, if you knew now what you knew then and maybe back then you didn't, um, you could have worked harder as you were saying, mm-hmm. you know, you wanted to get your England caps and you, you could have worked harder. But the sport was a very different sport then to what it is now. And an aspect of that is the support team around the athletes, the sports psychologists. You know, you probably got away with having a couple cheeky beers, but now absolutely not. Um, You are 100% an athlete, you know, inside and out. And I think when you ask so many players, they will tell you that, you know, 80% of it is a mental game. And you actually got described as um, a rugby player with a brilliant mind, with a brilliant <laughs> brain. Yeah, was it? The don't, know, don't know how I
1: managed to, to make anyone think <laughs> that. Yeah, that's great. I think it was oh, the like director
0: that. of the Harlequins yeah. who described oh, you as that. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have to find out and buy him a beer, that would be nice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, you know, when, when you don't have the psychologist to turn to, you have to turn to the people closest to you. And sometimes, mm-hmm. You know, making a mistake or something carries shame, and it is very hard to open up to your wife, your partner, your family, your closest friends. But taking that step to open up about it Mm. helped you immensely and allowed Alex to be a part of that experience with you and and carry you through with it.
1: Yeah, as as you say, it's very difficult to open up to those closest to you, and sometimes I've found it most therapeutic to speak to someone who I know but who's distant enough so that. You can get an honest answer or honest reflection on, on what you're saying. Uh, because often your families will, and good friends will say what they think you want to hear. And sometimes, as it goes back to that honesty thing, and how honest can these people be? But you've got to, you've got to expect some people, most people, to have an element of compassion in what they're saying. But the likelihood is that if I'm speaking to someone who's you know, got a degree of separation away from me, but they're going to give you an honest answer yeah, you messed up, wow, actually, God, no one ever said that to me before, you know, and, and it's like, well, I knew it, in my heart of hearts, I knew it, of course I did, you know, look at the outcome, I regret every, I regret it every day, but I've learned a huge amount from it, and hopefully I can impart some of that knowledge on to other people, but without someone who was sufficiently far away from me being fairly honest with me and saying, you've got to crack on, you know, you've got no choice, this was John Kingston at the time, who was my, admittedly my coach, but... It's like you can't dwell on it for too long. you just got to get on with it. Otherwise, you know, it comes back to what Alex says what the hell else are you going to do?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the athlete mentality as well because at the end of every rugby game, you know, if you've had a loss, it's like, well, we lost, let's find out why and we move on. There's mm. never a dwelling on that game. Oh, you sold for a bit, don't you? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you sold for a bit, but you're lucky in rugby because you've got a 32 game season and you you can't dwell on it for too long you try and sign it all off by Monday morning and move on to the next week Um, and if you plan 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 and plan things can still go wrong the weather can still be rubbish and the referee can make some poor decisions or what you perceive to be poor decisions and you can make mistakes because to err is human Mm. um, ultimately and I think understanding that mistakes don't necessarily mean that you're bad at your job or a bad person just so long as you learn from them and it sounds like a cliche again but you've got to learn from your mistakes you've got to learn from those low points in your life otherwise then you'll start stewing over why you keep messing up whereas at least if you learn from them you think okay well I've learned from it once what did Einstein say something like it's trying to do the same thing over and over again expecting a different result it's like well try not to do that
0: yeah it's insanity (laughs) yeah yeah and I think the reality is, is that all of us through our lifetime are going to be in a position like that and in, 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 a different area in our lives, but all of us are going to make a mistake somewhere along the way or go through a really difficult time. And like you said, it's how we come back from that. Yeah. And you said that the two years following Bloodgate, I mean, you were back playing with the Harlequins then.
1: Yeah. So I was banned for four months and I, I came back in what, November and, you know, I was a pale imitation of a player that I was prior to that point and I wasn't a regular starter prior to that point but in the you know, two years afterwards and eventually had this one game and it was just this one moment in this game away at Toulouse who were European champions at the time and Quins were playing pretty well but sort of starting to wane uh, towards the 50th, 50th minute in the game and uh, I got brought off the bench um, and the last time I got brought off the bench in a, in a European game was Two years earlier, against Leinster in that Heineken Cup quarter final, and I thought, well, I'm going to make my moment now, and I'm going to make it count, because this is my chance, or first chance of redemption in the same environment. And so, it happened that the kicker Nick Evans did the perfect kick off. I chased the kick off as hard as I'd ever chased a kick off before. Smashed the guy, uh, turned the ball over. We scored two phases later. I then proceeded to have like the best thirty minutes of rugby I'd had in my entire life. And even since, and Amazing. and we ended up winning the game, and I came off the pitch from cloud nine, and it was everyone was like really behind me. All the other, all the teammates were really behind me and supportive, and they realised how important that was to me. And the coach at the time, Conor O'Shea, came up to me and said, "Look, that was excellent. You changed the momentum of the game back in our favour. Um, really grateful." And I was like absolutely chuffed. So it, that was. A changing moment he quickly brought me back down to to size though and said you got a second team game at Henley um (laughs) on Monday morning and so I couldn't have too many beers after a game but I still allowed myself one or two
0: (laughs) yeah what an incredible moment and then it just carried on from there and it was sort
1: of yeah it sort of snowballed from there really I ended up the club used that moment it wasn't just that moment we were leading up to it anyway and so many things had happened in the past and so many people had put such hard work in I'm not going to pin that single moment of tackle off a kick, which was just down to the success of our team over the next three years. Huge amounts of work went into it from everyone. But from a personal perspective, yeah, that that moment sort of kick-started the rest of my career, which culminated in the premiership-winning team, being part of a premiership-winning team in 2012 and uh, uh, an LV Cup-winning team in 2013 and getting Players' Player of the Year that year, which was something I never thought I'd get. Three, two, three years prior to that
0: yeah, a tremendous achievement
1: yeah this is probably the proudest moment of my, my career definitely is not scoring in the final not playing for England sevens but getting that player's player award being acknowledged and um, celebrated by your peers is I think the greatest accolade you can ask for
0: mm. and also that Uh, self-achievement inside as well you know did you warm fuzzy feeling yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that feeling (laughs) yeah yeah
1: um sort of vindicated sticking at it from from my perspective and vindicated all the stress hard work that everyone had put in around me Mm. and it was almost nice to go thank you thank you for everyone to Alex to my family for for supporting me and to Harlequin
0: yeah, Harlequins have you have an amazing relationship with them, being there so long and.
1: Yeah, it wasn't always good. You know, in those days after the Bloodgate, it was very, very strained. And in the, in the year year after Bloodgate, it was very strained. Even in two years after, the director Robbie O'Shea, said, "Look, you know, we need you to find another club because you're not performing." Um, so, but he said it because he had the club's best interests at heart and. Uh, I also wanted to prove him wrong, so it was nice, nice to be able to do that. I wanted to lose him that day.
0: I um, love the athlete determination. <laughs> like I will yeah, prove it, you wrong. Yeah,
1: it's, it's not. It's not to say. Okay, I'll leave. It's like, No, no. I want to stay. I want to lose. I want to leave on my, my own, um, my own terms. Sorry. Okay. I did the athlete mentality. To, I could have. I could have sat back and said, um, okay, I'll find a new club. <laughs> I'll do my best to find a new club. And incidentally, I spoke to my agent. He goes, Look, Let's be honest, mate. You're Tom Williams' blood gate and you've done nothing since, so you best, you best strap your boots on and get on with it. So, <laughs> so it was uh, some home truths there. Well, he didn't say it as, as such, but he's much nicer than that, um, Christian, and uh, he just said, look, to be honest, there's not a lot out there. Um, so that sort of gave me no choice to, but to crack on with it.
0: Do you find that the players that you coach now um, are able to open up to you a little bit more because of what you've been through?
1: I think it's not necessarily because of that um, or their knowledge of that. It's more that it's my knowledge of it that helps get details out of them um, and information out of them and, or, or allows them to do so because I'm probably receptive to those emotions, to those feelings. And I'm also aware that my knowledge and ability to deal with it is limited. So I'll say, look. I'll have these conversations, and I'll be very, um, I'll be hopefully you know just a, someone to lend an ear, but I'll be also trying to point them towards the professionals who have the ability to help them through these difficult times. Um, you know, I've got an example of a, a guy who, uh, you know, had um, so many different things going on in his life. He had university, he he had a loan club, Quinn's, England, family. Uh, and he was just you know trying to process it all was meaning that he was really not performing well now trying to get through to him and from a personal perspective was really difficult but I've really just gradually over time try to nurture that relationship and try and push him towards speaking to someone who can help him out professionally so our psychologist at Quinn's and uh, I think you know he's starting to get on top of those things and we'll see uh, some great performances from him in the future
0: I'm excited for that future.
1: Yeah, be really cool.
0: Yeah, um, thank you so much for talking with us today and opening up about your experiences. I really appreciate your honesty today.
1: No, as I said, it can be quite therapeutic. So uh, I'm uh, more than happy to have been here and thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you, Tom. Cool. An inspirational comeback from Tom Williams there and insightful information on his coaching techniques which will help you hopefully in your managerial roles. If you enjoyed this episode, please ensure you rate us 5 stars and you can find us on our socials on Twitter at thecorpathlete and on Instagram at the underscore corporate underscore athlete. And if you want to find out more information on how these wonderful athletes and their mentality can help your business thrive, please visit the you Thrive website at uthriveltd.com where you can find me on LinkedIn, Rachel Findler. Alright, I'm off for ankle surgery tomorrow after buggering it in a ski injury this winter and I will give you all the updates and how I did my injury and how I overcame it in one of the episodes over the next few months. But in the meantime, enjoy the episodes and we'll see you in a couple weeks.